the most recent edition of The Atlantic, ranked the worst predictions of all time. The worst predictions of all time. Here are a few in their top five. In 1946, the co-founder of 20th Century Fox said, television won't be able to hold any market longer than six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. If only it were true. More famously, President Woodrow Wilson said that World War I would be the war to end all wars. Dick Cheney in 2003 predicted that the U.S. troops headed to Iraq would be welcomed warmly and would be there only weeks rather than months. Perhaps most surprising, at least to me, among the Atlantic's top five worst predictions of all time, Jesus' words in Matthew 5, that the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. According to the Atlantic, this is a botched prediction. It's an idea, apparently to them, that is patently untrue. It's like predicting uh, a week-long war in Iraq or believing World War I would be the, world, the, the war to end all wars. It's like predicting the six-month lifespan of the TV. What we Christians would say to the editors of The Atlantic is that they're off on the timing. The timing. The meek shall inherit the earth happens in another age, an age to come. It hasn't happened yet. We know the TV didn't last six months because we still have them. We know World War I wasn't the war to end all wars because there are many, maybe hundreds, going on even now. We know Dick Cheney was wrong about Iraq lasting only weeks because we were there a long time. But the meek shall inherit the earth. That's future tense, and it hasn't happened yet. And we don't know when. And we don't presume to know when. Well, at least we shouldn't presume to know when. Some Christians have presumed to know when. They've presumed to know when the end is coming, when Christ is coming back. I remember in high school being on pins and needles for much of 1988 because of the book. There are 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. More recently, though it was of no concern to me, Harold Camping the founder of Family Life Radio, he first predicted that Jesus would return in 1994. And when that year came and passed, he recalculated things and came up with May 21st, 2011 for the coming of Christ. And when that day came and went, he apologized, but he recalculated again, and he came up with October 16th, 2011. Perhaps he forgot to carry the one or something? I, I, how does it keep changing, Harold? A year later, Harold Camping concluded that setting dates for the return of Christ was wrong, and he quoted Jesus, no man knows the hour. A verse that had he paid more attention to would have saved him not only some embarrassment, but also some math. You should also know that this kind of embarrassment is not limited to Christianity's crazy uncles. The Puritans, 
made similar, similar calculations for the return of Christ. Many of you know I'm a big fan of the Puritans. Many of their writings and sermons are uniquely rich in doctrine and devotion. And yet many of them in the 17th century especially were misguided and overly zealous about the end times. They wrongly read into the circumstances that they were living in. And so when the good old Puritan cause was having success and holding sway, they believed Christ's return was very near. Some of them set dates. They made calculations based on parts of Daniel or Revelation. But within just a few decades, their optimism was jolted back to reality. Even within one decade, you go from the Puritans in power, as they said, in 1650s, to in 1662, these Puritan pastors being ejected from their pulpits, and many of them, like John Bunyan, facing prison time for preaching or simply meeting with the saints. So what, what, what once looked so near to them was rather quickly proven to be, for them, quite far away. And it might not be surprising then that some saints since then have wrongly reacted to end-time frenzy with apathy or even with cynicism about the coming of the Lord or end-time theology. The great Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century, for instance, said, You will hear me preach on revelation when all the elect are saved. So long as souls are unsaved, we will keep to the plain gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That must have been early on in his ministry because I looked it up. He preached 76 sermons from Revelation. But even later on, he said, people ask me if I can explain the seven trumpets of Revelation. I always say, no, but I can blow a trumpet in your ear and tell you to flee from the wrath to come. <laughs> Which side of the fence do you fall off of? Which side of the fence do you tend to fall off of? Speculation or indifference? Calculations or cynicism? Obsession or apathy? If the Puritans and Charles Spurgeon didn't walk the fence very well, what makes you think you do? Well, my prayer for us today as we turn to Mark chapter 13 is that God would help us to properly think about Christ's return and rightly live in light of it, not watching for the wrong signs, but eagerly waiting for the right one, the one who is to come just as he said he would. Let's read Mark 13, starting in verse 24 to the end of the chapter. Jesus says, but in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, 
You know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Well, last week we looked at Mark 13 as a whole. We saw that Jesus predicted the utter destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And sure enough, that's exactly what took place in the year A.D. 70. Of course, when Jesus predicted it here in Mark 13, it hadn't happened yet. And so in verse 4, the disciples ask him, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? I suggested last week that Jesus answers them on three different levels or with three different time stamps. So if you look down in your Bibles, even if you were here last week, let's remind ourselves. What we see is verses 5 to 13 as one section where he's telling them about the circumstances of every age. Things that are not signs of his return, nor signs of the temple's destruction. Like false Christs, or wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, persecution. These things shouldn't alarm you, he says. These things must take place, verse 7, but the end is not yet. These, verse 8, are but the beginning of birth pains. The baby's not being born, it's just the mom in labor. These are not the signs of the end, but signs of sin and signs of a world that is under a curse. A second part to Jesus' answer is verses 14 to 23. There, Jesus speaks to the destruction of the temple. Not by telling the disciples when it will happen. That's what they asked. When will that happen? Instead, he gives them instructions not to take up sword when there is a massive battle splitting Jerusalem in half, the Jews versus the Romans. He's telling them instead to flee Not fight to protect the temple. Flee and let it go. And then Jesus gave a related parable. See in verse 28 to 31, part of what we read this morning already. This is a parable for that generation, or as he says in verse 30, this generation. That is, people in the first century, people who would go through what happened in the year A.D. 70. He says it's like a fig tree. When you see its leaves, you know that summer is near. So when you see Jerusalem shaken and war-torn, do not be afraid. You know that he is near. You know that the temple will pass away. Even heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not pass away. 
But in verses 24 to 27, and in 32 to 37, Jesus there is talking about the coming of the Son of Man, the return of Christ. He's talking about that day. It's definitive. That day, that hour, that day when the Master returns. And here in these verses, 24 to 27, and 32 to 37, Jesus is answering really the second part of the disciples' question that they asked in verse 4. What will be the sign when all these things, all of them, when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus' answer is startling and assuring simultaneously. And that's what we want to focus on today. Let's think about Jesus' teaching about his second coming in these three ways this morning. How Christ will return, when Christ will return, and how to wait for his return. Very simple. First, how Christ will return. Verses 24 to 27 focus on the how, the nature of his return, what it's like. Verses 32 to 37 focus on the question of when and how to wait for his return. But the only time indicator that we see here in verses 24 to 27 is there in verse 24 when it says that this will be after that tribulation. That tribulation being what he just described. That being the destruction of the temple that took place in A.D. 70. It's after that tribulation that Jesus comes. He doesn't say how much after. So far, it's been over 1,900 years since that tribulation. We don't know how far after it'll be, but we know it will be after. And here's how it will go down whenever it happens. It will be cosmic upheaval. Cosmic upheaval. Verse 24, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. These are not warning signs that he's about to come. These are happening because he comes. When he comes with great power and glory, creation will be heaving, dry heaves, as it were. Heaven and earth will be shaken. Verse 26, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. All of this will be sudden. According to Luke's account of this, it'll be like lightning. It'll be like a thief in the night. It will be unmistakable. No one will say, hey, Jesus came back. And he's over there somewhere. He's hiding out in Jerusalem. Let's go look for him. People will say that before, but it won't be true when he comes. Both in Matthew 24 and in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says that his, his coming will be accompanied by loud trumpet blasts for all to hear. Revelation 1 says that he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. It'll be unmistakable. It'll be universal. It won't be in one part of the world. It'll be in the four corners of the world. Him coming, then, 
unmistakably, in the clouds, with great power and glory, will either be to your everlasting destruction or to your everlasting deliverance. That's it. There's a parting of the ways at this point. Verse 27 says that he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. The emphasis is on the positive here, but it isn't always the case elsewhere in Scripture. And therefore, we should not presume. We should not presume. His elect? What does that mean? It means his people. It means his chosen ones, those he has elected. And you ask, am I elect? Am I chosen? Well, I don't know. We're not told this exactly, but here's the realm in which we operate. Have you trusted solely in Jesus' blood and righteousness on your behalf? Do you believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he was paying the payment for your sins? Have you given up all other gods, all other forms of self-salvation, and come to see Jesus as your only hope for eternal life? Do you believe what Jesus said about himself in this book? Do you believe what Jesus said about you? Oh yeah, he spoke about you. He spoke about all of us. He said that we're sinners, we're rebels, we're damned, and we need his mercy. Is it true of you what Paul said of the Ephesians? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Is that true of you? Do you believe that you could be found in him not having a righteousness of your own which comes from the law, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ? Do you believe that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones, that he might bring us to God? And if you say yes, well then you have every reason to believe that you are among his elect. And every reason to believe that he is coming for you. And yet if those verses I read are not true of you, if you have spurned his welcome, refused his mercy, denied your sin, excused your sin, sought other saviors, bowed before other gods, and if you continue in that and will not relent, will not give up, will not run to him, before he returns, then he is coming for you too, but not to gather you to himself, instead to fling you eternally from himself. He is coming not for your deliverance, but for your destruction. Our sin is that serious, and his holy justice is that serious. Our sin is that black, and his holiness is that white hot. So he is either coming for your final redemption or for a final reckoning. And his coming will take you by surprise if he's coming for a reckoning. We read later on in verse 36 that he comes suddenly. Like in the days of Noah before the flood. 
They assumed that it was just like every other day. They ate, they drank, they were merry, and the flood came, and they were gone. Like two people working at the mill, and then one is taken in judgment, and the other is left. The stars, when they fall from heaven, will not be a sign for you to repent. It will be too late. The stars falling from heaven and the sun going black is not time for you to bow before Christ and finally give up. The stars fall and the sun goes black because he's coming with that much power and glory. Therefore, Christian, do not look for the signs which are not signs. Don't look for the signs which aren't really signs. Don't complicate this more than Scripture does. Christ's coming will be universal, unmistakable. It will be sudden, cosmic. He will appear. Everyone will see him. And if we're his, he will bring us to himself. And so shall we be with the Lord forever and ever. Therefore, I would suggest to you that all this is a single event. It's a single event. Just think through the implications if that's true. You might have some extra pieces that you think are going to happen at the end. What if it's all just one big thing, one one and done kind of thing? I know not every Christian agrees with me on that. You can think differently with me than me and still be a member at Desert Springs Church. You can even disagree with me on that and still be an elder at Desert Springs Church. This is not something we're going to divide over. But let me personally suggest to you that this passage and many others like it sure look like one big single event. It looks like one second coming, not two or three. I don't see a secret getaway for some in the middle of the night. It's loud, it's public, it's universal, it's unmistakable, it's a cosmic upheaval, and apparently it leads to being with him forever and ever, a whole new creation. Reread 1 Corinthians 15 with that in mind. Reread 1 Thessalonians 4 with the possibility of it being a single event in mind. Reread the whole New Testament and its many passing lines about Christ's return being the end of all things, or his return being the final judgment, or his return being the restoration of all things, or his return being the deliverance for some and the destruction of others at the same time, like Second Thessalonians 1. Don't get your theology from popular novels or cheesy movies. Don't get your theology from alarmist websites that can cite 50 new reasons why Jesus is coming back soon. Don't get your theology from what you always believed or from your parents or from me. Read your Bible. Think. Okay, stepping down off my soapbox now. Let me turn to things that we must agree on as Christians. What I just said in the last couple minutes, we don't have to agree on. But let me talk about what we must agree on as Christians. For one, we must agree that disagreements about how Jesus will return and the order of things around his return must not divide us. Rather, the fact of his return as our hope must unite us, 
must excite us. We must encourage each other with the words of his coming and the promise of his return. We must remember and remind each other that Jesus' return will be surpassingly glorious and it will be personal. He's coming for us. It's personal. He will gather us to himself. Yes, he'll use those most glorious beings, his messengers, the angels, to gather us, but they will gather us not just to a place, but to a person. It's also personal in that he's coming. He's coming. We will see him. Yes, it's an event, but, but more importantly, it is a person. The Greek word used in the New Testament so often for Christ's return is the parousia. It's also a theological word if you read a systematic theology. The word parousia means appearing. The word apocalypse, that means revelation. You might think it means horrible signs, apocalyptic signs. No, it means revealing, revealing, revealing him. The book of Revelation, it's a book about revealing, revealing the future, yeah, yeah, a bit. Christ, it reveals Christ when he appears. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just listen to how the New Testament emphasizes this event as an appearing of the one that we long to see. You won't be able to keep up. I just got some phrases from all over the New Testament here. Like in 1 Corinthians 1, 7, we eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Or Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. In Colossians 3.4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. In 2 Thessalonians 2, we glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we will one day be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul charged Timothy to be faithful until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or 2 Timothy 4, there he charged him in view of his appearing and his kingdom. Again in 2 Timothy 4, there's a crown, Paul says, awaiting for me on that day, not just for me, but all those who have loved his appearing. Loved his appearing. In Titus 2, we wait for the blessed hope, that is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or Hebrews 9 he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Or 1 Peter 1, 13, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed when Jesus Christ is revealed. On and on I could go. I have more here, but I'll stop. You get the point. It's an appearing of Christ. What do you think of when you think of Christ's return? A new heaven and a new earth, no more sin, no more sickness, no more aches in your body, no more annoying people. 
No more fret, no more worry. Those are all true of the new heaven and the new earth. And we should think about those things. But I suspect we're slightly out of balance about this. I'm amazed how much the New Testament emphasizes the event of him coming and the appearing of him coming and the wonder and glory of us seeing it and beholding it. It is possible to be interested in end-time chronology more than the appearance of Christ. It's possible to long for suffering to end more than longing for the one who suffered for us. So know what his return will be like. It will be cosmic, sudden, unmistakable, visible, universal for our redemption, a gathering to himself if we're his. It will be personal and it will be permanent. Secondly, when Christ will return. The when can be handled a little more quickly. There's not a whole lot to it, is there? When? Well, verse 32 says, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. The Father knows when Christ will come. He knows Christ will return. The future in the hand of the sovereign God is no less certain than the past. The past is certain, right? You can look back, you know what happened. The future is not uncertain, we know. Christ will return. The Father knows, he has a plan. But angels don't even know what this plan is. These glorious, majestic messengers that some Christians at times have seen and been tempted to worship, these things, doing his plan, orchestrating his will, giving him his worship, they don't know the hour. Even more, the Son doesn't know the hour. How can this be said of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, that he doesn't know the hour? It's his return. How does he not know? Well, some people say that's because of Jesus' incarnation, kind of like as a kid, he grew in wisdom and stature, so this is just something he hasn't been told yet. I don't know. I don't think so. I think this is because of the nature of the Trinity. Three persons, one God, Jesus being the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit usually get mentioned in that order because there is not a difference of equality or a difference of godness between them, but there is a difference in subjection among them. So Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And Jesus also says nothing of his own will, but only speaks the words that the Father gives him. He came to do his Father's will. In Acts 1, he even told them there, the dates and the times are set by the Father according to his own authority. The Son doesn't yet even know when he will return. If Jesus doesn't know when he will return, you sure don't know when Jesus will return. (laughs) 
If angels don't know, if Jesus doesn't know, uh, argument from greater to the lesser here, you don't know. No man knows, verse 32. And then Jesus gives this parable. Verse 34, it's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Jesus Christ could return tomorrow. Jesus Christ might return 3,000 years from now. And we're supposed to live like both of those are possible, because they are. We're not to live so short-sightedly, thinking, oh, sure, he's coming back in my lifetime, and we don't parent well. We don't raise kids not just for their own success and health and godliness, but raise them to be good parents and godly grandparents. We should think generationally. He may not be coming back in our lifetime, and yet he might. He might be coming back. He might be coming back. We don't, we don't know. It could be any season. It could be any circumstances. Don't think there's enough information here, that the signs are clear enough here that you will know when it's getting closer and, and when it's not. Have you ever thought that it's actually very good of God to not tell us when the end will be? If you knew that the coming of Christ would happen 20 years from now, I suspect you, like me, would coast for the next 15 years and maybe get real serious that last five. Or even wait for the last year and then really give it your all. And some of you would wait until the last day. And oh, how good of a day it will be because you know it's the last and you can give it your all. And those first disciples, if they'd been told that it won't happen for 2,000 years or 3,000 years, I think they might have lost some motivation for their mission, some fervor in their prayers. It's good that God doesn't tell you the future. It's good that you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Your life's a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. We make our plans about going into a city, James 4 says, to buy and sell and make a profit. But we always say, if the Lord wills, we will do such and such. Because we do not know. So don't waste your time speculating about how close his return is. It could be tomorrow. It could be 3,000 years from now. It's not dependent on the number of earthquakes, wars, or famines, or persecutions. These only mean not yet. So when? We don't know. Thirdly, how to wait for his return. If we know we need to wait, as the disciples did, then how do we wait for his return? Well, by being awake and watching, not sleeping. Let's read verses 32 to 37 again, this time emphasizing not so much that we don't know the timing, that's what we were just talking about under point number two, but now the implication of us not knowing the timing, how we're to wait. 
Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the, the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Well, this is clearly the emphasis of the whole chapter, isn't it? Being on guard, staying awake, not being deceived, not being asleep. That's the emphasis. But what does all that mean? What are the implications for Jesus' followers? Think of this in terms of horizons of hearers. Think of these words hitting the ears of those first disciples who heard Jesus speak them the first time. Those there in that Passion Week, the Tuesday before the crucifixion Friday. I mean, they're about to go to sleep when Jesus says, Don't sleep, guys. Pray. Keep watch. Keep watch. Can you not keep watch for me one hour? And they sleep. He's about to go away from them. They'll need to keep watching, not just on that Thursday night before his arrest, but for the decades to come under persecution. You think of these words as they first hit the eyes of Mark's readers as he assembled all this about Jesus and what he said. You can imagine, probably in these years, right before that turmoil in Jerusalem, before A.D. 70, they were reading these words about Jesus' prediction of it. They were hearing him predict again another thing. Just like he predicted his death and his resurrection, repeated it over and over and over again. He predicted it, and it happened. It was betrayal, And it happened. It was betrayal by the Jewish leaders and also the Roman leaders as well. He said he'd be beaten and flogged. And he was. And he said he'd rise on the third day, and he did. He said there'd be persecution, and Mark's readers were going through it. He said the gospel would be preached in all the world, among all the nations, and they were starting to see it. They were seeing this thing spread like wildfire even during this great persecution. And of course, these words of Jesus here in Mark 13 are very important for every Christian who has ever lived since. People like us. Our master has gone away. And we are his servants. And he has put us, like it says in verse 34, he's put us in charge, each with his own work. Almost like the body of Christ picture here. We each have an assignment. It's not all the same. We're in the house, and we're watching and waiting. The master will return. We know not when. But what will he find when he returns? Will he find us awake and watchful or asleep and indifferent? You might wonder, as I did this week, what does it really mean to be awake spiritually, and not asleep, because we shouldn't take that for granted. So let me offer a few things. If we're to keep awake, 
That assumes, I think, that we've already been awakened. We aren't still in darkness. So Ephesians 5.8 says, you once were in darkness, but now you're in light, so walk as children of the light. He's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. In other words, those Jesus is speaking to and those he anticipates would read this someday are saved people. They're not in darkness. They're not dead in their trespasses and sins. They're alive and alive to him. As Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Another thing it means to stay awake and not be asleep is, well, this one is a negative one. Here's what it doesn't mean. Jesus doesn't mean here that we're to be on guard in watching the signs of the times, trying to guess when he's near. Jesus didn't say, the master has left clues in the house, very subtle clues. And if you sleuth well enough, you can piece it together and find out when he's coming back. No, you know not when. What will he find when he returns? Will he find his servants bickering about their best guesses for when he'll return and how he'll return? That's not what he's called us to. To stay awake and not be asleep means that we're busy about what he's called us to do, each with his own work. We got work to do. Stay busy. Stay awake. When you sleep, you can't work. When you're awake, you can work. It also means that we're to live like we're actually his servants, like we're his, we're in his house, like we're, like we're not in darkness, but we're awake. In Romans 13, Paul says, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. See then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's what it means to be awake. And it also means that we're consciously awaiting and eagerly expecting his return. The early church had the word, well, two words in Aramaic, Maranatha, come, Lord, come, Lord. And they used this as a greeting. They met each other and, and they said, Maranatha. They left each other as a salutation. They said, Maranatha, come, Lord. They talked about the coming of Christ more than we do. At least in this church, more than we do the end of Revelation, Jesus told John, surely I am coming soon. And John responded, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Are you eager for his return like this? Are you living in light of his coming, which could be soon? Are you living like it could be tomorrow? Do you believe it can be? 
Why not? He predicted many other things. Why not this? Even in the first century, some were saying, he said he was coming back, and it's been a really long time. Therefore, he's not coming. And Peter deals with this. He says in 2 Peter 3, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. You're working on your timetable, not his. What things in your life would change if you came to know with certainty today that there will be no heaven, that there will be no hell, and there is no return of Christ? I mean, let's just play John Lennon for a minute. Imagine, imagine there's no heaven, no hell below us, above us only sky, living for today. Is that a good thing for you? It was for John Lennon for a time. Would anything in your life change if you knew that to be true, if you could imagine and live it out? I sure hope so. I, I hope things would change if you knew there's no heaven, there's no hell, and there's no second coming of Christ. I'd get a different job. <laughs> I would. I'd stop reading the Bible so much. I'd sell off a few thousand books that I have in my study. I wouldn't give money to a church or missionaries anymore. But I confess not enough would change. If there was no heaven, no hell, and no return of Christ, I'd live a little bit differently. Not that much. Meaning that my life hasn't been that altered by the reality of the coming of Christ, the reality of a heaven and a hell. What more in your life needs to be shaped and reshaped according to the reality of Christ's glorious and sure coming. What will he find when he returns? What will he say? Does it matter? Are you longing just for the suffering to end and not longing for the one who suffered in your place? Are you interested in what's to come? Curious? Or do you love the Lord Jesus so much that you long to see him Peter writes, 1 Peter 1, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. And he went on to say that you should set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Are you slack-jawed about the reality that you will one day behold God with your eyes? Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you believe that when you see him, you will forever be transformed? We don't even know what it'll be like. That's what 1 John 3 says. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes in this way purifies himself as he is pure. Are you among those who love 
the idea of his appearing. Not the idea, the reality of his appearing, and you long for it. Look, ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now from the fight returned victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. Crown him, crown him. Crowns become the victor's brow. Crown the Savior, angels crown him. Rich the trophies Jesus brings. In the seat of power enthrone him, while the vault of heaven rings. Crown him, crown him, crown the Savior, King of kings. Hark those bursts of acclamation. Hark those loud triumphant chords. Jesus takes the highest station. Oh, what joy the sight affords. Crown him, crown him, King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words to us through your servant Mark. We thank you for your word. We pray for your help to long for you more. Lord, keep us from a hypocrisy that says we want to see you and we want what's next when we don't seek you even now. Lord, give us a hunger for prayer, a hunger to see you in your word and the pages of it, to see you by faith until one day we see you with our sight. We long for that day. We pray, Lord, that you would come. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Until then, give us what we need. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us of our sins. Help us to forgive those who've sinned against us. Help us, we pray, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, both now and forever. Amen.